week we jumped into a brand new sermon series that we are calling Upside Down Living. And I wanted to make you aware of a great book that I'm using to draw some of the material that I'll bring into this series. It's a book titled Momentum by Colin Smith, and it's on the Beatitudes. He's also a free church pastor in the Chicago area. Great book, very practical on how this would be applied to your life. So I just wanted to encourage you, since we're going to be in this to Christmas, if you wanted a little more that you might use in your own quiet time or just to read, consider getting a copy of Colin Smith's Momentum. So, what have we learned so far in our series, which was just one week, but it was an important week. What did we learn? Well, last week I stressed that Jesus came to inaugurate a radical new kingdom. And so the Beatitudes can only be understood in light of that kingdom. In other words, the Beatitudes are not just eight random, beautiful virtues that you might occasionally see in some people somewhere out there at some point in your life. Oh, no. No, 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 no. These Beatitudes are all describing one particular group of people. Kingdom people who have submitted to King Jesus. And so they are Christians. Kingdom people submitted to King Jesus. So let's read it again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm beginning reading in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes... Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, they came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. And here's all I want to do today. Since we're going to be in this series all the way through Christmas, we're going to go slow. It's worth going slow. We're going to take it one beatitude at a time. So all I want to do today is look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about being poor in spirit? Well, it's helpful to understand the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And there's two different Greek words for the word poor. The first word is the word penis. And it describes a working man who has nothing extra or left over. In other words, he's not rich, but he's not destitute either. That's not the word Jesus uses in this beatitude. Instead, he uses a word right here, the word patohos. Patohos, the other word for poor, that describes a condition of absolute, abject poverty. 
In fact, the root of this word means to crouch or cower. In other words, this is someone who has absolutely nothing at all so that they are forced to kneel and beg. Jesus is saying, oh my goodness, Jesus is saying, the person who has absolutely nothing at all is the one who's blessed, which makes it all the more surprising. These people who have nothing at all so that they're forced to crouch and beg are the very people who are blessed. Now, if that's not an upside-down kingdom and radical, I don't know what is. But don't make a mistake right here. We're living in a day, again, this happens every so often in history, but it's just happening again where social justice is such the hype now. It's almost like no one cares that Christianity is about solving your biggest problem, your sin problem that would have taken you to hell unless you're feeding the hungry, digging a well, or or stopping oppression. You're not doing what Jesus came to do. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, please dig some wells, feed some people, stop some oppression along the way, but that is not our worst problem. Jesus came into this world to solve your biggest problem, and so the church should be about solving that biggest problem by declaring the good news of the gospel. Jesus is not talking about physical poverty or lack of material things right here. You're not blessed if you're physically poor. He is talking about a spiritual poverty or an awareness, an awareness that you don't have what it takes and you don't have what you need on your own within you to make it in this world. Those are the people who are blessed. See, we live in a world that says, oh, real joy, real joy and fulfillment are found in pursuing Self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, and I could add a dozen more hyphenated self-words. And along comes Jesus Christ saying, absolutely not. Fulfillment and purpose and joy will never be found in hyphenated self-words, ever. Instead, ooh, instead it can be found in a childlike God reliance and a submissive God confidence along with along with an amazing awareness of your own unworthiness and your desperate need for God's great mercy radically different radically different has any of that ever dawned on you. Christianity and God and the gospel were never designed to be a booster shot that still keeps you moving down the path of self-fulfillment, self-determination, self-esteem, and oh, God's just helping me with all that. No. Has it ever dawned on you? God confidence, a submissive God awareness, and an awareness of your own on worthiness and desperate need for his great mercy if not you are probably not in the kingdom not in the kingdom 
So how would you know if you're poor in spirit? How would you know if you have to any degree what Jesus is talking about here? Well, here's what I wanna do in the time that remains. I want to show you what I think poor in spirit looks like. So I'm gonna give you eight characteristics of what I think poor in spirit looks like in a real life, yours or mine. Here's the first, number one. When you're poor in spirit, you understand that God owns you and you stop thinking that God owes you. Woo! Listen to me. If you wake up every day thinking that God owes you, you are probably not born again not in the kingdom. God is the creator and we are the creatures and so that means that he owns you and you have a duty to him, not the other way around. But our culture keeps spinning that around and makes so much of us that you can actually slide into thinking, God exists to serve me. Therefore, I write his job description and then I give him quarterly reviews and I evaluate how well he's doing at being God. And in fact, God is continually on the hot seat as to whether or not I'm gonna let him keep being God or not. There's probably very few people in this room that say those things out loud because someone would smack you. But oh my goodness, oh my goodness, multitudes of people live every day with those thoughts feeding their own heart and just roaring inside of them. Oh yeah, I believe there's a God and his job is to help me. His job is to do what I think and I let him know how well he's doing at being God. Mm. I hope you can see how self and pride are at the very root of that whole mess of thinking that way. That God owes me. He owes me. Instead of he owns me. See, here's the problem with that approach to God. When you approach that God that way, that he owes you, and you're thinking through his job description, and you get to evaluate how well he's doing, here's, I'm going to describe some of you, and maybe you've wondered, what, why is it this way? When you approach God that way, it always leads to disappointment, bitterness, and resentment as well as absolutely killing God's blessing on your life. Any of God's blessing on your life. Because because he said, blessed are the poor in spirit who understand this. I owe God everything and can give him nothing while God owes me nothing but has given me everything. That's how kingdom people think and live. Do you ever think that? Are you ever stirred to the point of wanting to lift your hands and worship by the fact that I owe God everything and could give him nothing. He needs nothing from me. I can add nothing to God. And God owes me nothing but has given me everything. Kingdom people who are submitted to King Jesus have those kind of thoughts. You say, Brad, that's radical. Yes. That's what Jesus intended to do. 
not give us a little sermon that so much matched what, you know, as you listen, I'm sure the crowd then and you today aren't thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I would have thought. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah. No. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. This is radical, upside-down living that could only be produced in someone by new birth, new birth, new birth, to have light where there was darkness, hope where there was despair, truth where there were lies. Kingdom, people who've been rescued by King Jesus. Let me give you a second characteristic of what it means to be poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, you stop telling God how great you are. And you start asking him for what you need. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, quote, A poor man is ever begging. And he who is poor in spirit is much in prayer. These two things are connected. Poor in spirit, much in prayer. Why? Well, because people who know their desperate need will have an active prayer life because they're always asking God to do for them what they know they cannot do for themselves. They live with a continual sense of great need. Not how great I am and therefore God owes me and so I tell him what he's supposed to do next. I see my need. I ask. I ask. I ask. Remember last, last week I, I pointed you towards the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 about the two guys that went up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they prayed radically different prayers. Because the Pharisee The Pharisee simply prays about himself in front of God. All he used God was for was an audience for him to tell God how great he is. He didn't ask, did it ever occur to you when you read it? He didn't ask God for anything. He just tells God how great he is. Oh God, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I tithe of everything that I have. And here's what's so sad about his prayer. He asked God for nothing. And that's exactly what he received. Nothing. While the tax collector hung his head and cried out to God and begged, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went home having received much from God. Let me ask you, what about you? When you pray, and I hope you do, what does it sound like? I'm not asking you, do you pray? The Pharisee prayed. He's a religious person. He prayed. But have, have your prayers shifted into simply you telling God how great you are and what you think he should do next for you and how you're better than somebody else and how he owes this Or do you come into the presence of God with a continual sense of great need and you ask God to do for you what you could never do for yourself? What do your prayers sound like? And that leads so well into the next characteristic. Number three, when you're poor in spirit, you stop feeling like a stranger in God's presence. 
Now, if some of you were honest, you would have to say right now, honestly, Brad, I just feel like a stranger when it comes to God. When I hear you talk about intimacy with God and sweetness meeting with Jesus and worship and he's real to you and you love him and he loves you and you enjoy him and you delight in him, you talk about him like he's real and like he's close. I don't really know what you're talking about. Listen to me. It's not a new study Bible you need with amazing notes. It's not colored pencils you need. It's not a new worship CD you need. Consider this. If you want to move beyond a vague, vague, impersonal sense that God exists somewhere out there, then work on being poor in spirit. If you want a greater awareness of God's felt sense and presence in your life, cultivate being poor in spirit because God draws near to the poor in spirit. In fact, I would tell it this way to you. God begins to close the gap between you and him because he is so attracted to poor in spirit, lowly, contrite, humble. God himself begins to close the gap between you and him when he sees this kind of spirit. That's what God declares in Isaiah 57, 15. Listen to it. God speaking. Thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. An amazing word coming up. And also. And also with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. An amazing four-letter word. Also. You understand what God's saying? The awesome God of the universe is saying, I live in two places. Yes, I'm transcendent, high, and lifted up. Other, mysterious, fearful, holy, majestic, almighty, and also I draw near. That same God draws near to the man or woman who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I don't know about you, but I want to be that person. I don't just want to know about God, you guys. I don't want to just grow in doctrine and knowledge and theory. I want to know God, not just about God. I long for intimacy with God, closeness with God, the reality of God in my life, and that comes with being poor in spirit. Psalm 138 teaches the very same thing when it says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, he knows from afar. 
In other words, he's saying, I pull back from the haughty. And I draw near to the lowly. So what is God doing in regards to you right now? Is he pulling back? Or is he drawing near? And this can be very hard for gifted and able people. Please know, God does gift some people with amazing gifts and strengths and abilities. He'll do that. And so let me say something to those of you that feel gifted and able. Even though you don't announce it as you enter a room, I hope, or you have no friends. (laughs) I'm gifted, I'm able, and I'm here. I'm the smartest person in this room. But if you were to be honest, you're like, I I don't regularly, like, oh, I've got nothing. Oh, you're gifted. You're able. Here's some good news. God does not, being poor in spirit doesn't mean you pretend you're not. It's not a false humility. But let me help you. You don't have to pretend you're not, but when you are gifted and able and poor in spirit, here's what it looks like. It means you stop trying, number four, to use God as a prop for flaunting and promoting your own gifts. Listen to me. Because of your gifts, your abilities, your strengths, you may have something to offer your family. You may have something to offer your church family. You may have something to offer your company and your friends and your team. But when you're poor in spirit, you identify with the Apostle Paul, who was also very educated and gifted and able, who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, for who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? In other words, any gifts you have, God gave them to you. So there's no place for boasting. No place for boasting. God gave it to you. That gifted football player. You see, you see athletes that, yes, you know they worked hard. You know they trained hard. Maybe they had a good school and some good coaches around them. But you recognize they just had amazing, unbelievable abilities from birth. And then they built on that. So that whole nonsense, you can be whatever you want to be, just work hard, shut up, go home. Some of you can't. <laughs> work your butt off. You're never going to be that great. You, you got to start with something and then work hard with that. But who gave you that something? Who made you different? You started with an ability and a gift and a strength that God gave you. So that football player may have a talent to offer his team, and he'll likely be celebrated and talked about at school. He'll be offered some scholarships at the best colleges and maybe even some lucrative endorsements. But when he stands before God, if he has any knowledge of God at all, then he knows God gave it all to me. That college graduate does have a talent that she can offer her company. And she'll probably graduate cum laude or better. 
And she'll be on a fast track for promotion and she'll be the hub of influence and creativity, breaking new ground with her company. Yes, yes, yes. But when she stands before God, if she has any knowledge of God at all, then she knows God gave it all to me. That's what poor in spirit looks like. You may be a superstar in sports or mega successful in business or a mega mother at home. I don't mean the size of your body. You're just good at it. You're working hard to do it well, homemaker mother, mega mother at home. You may be a brilliant musician, a technical guru, or a political genius. But if you're poor in spirit, then you know that God gave you those gifts to bring him glory by serving others, not promoting your own name. Kingdom people live for the name of another. Kingdom people live to promote the name of another. And that is radically different. In a world where people, right, people and personalities loom large in our world. Even in the Christian community, sadly, you see it even in the Christian community where personalities and people loom so large that God is often regarded as nothing more than a prop, just a prop on the stage of my own performance. But people who are poor in spirit know I am nothing more than a blip on the screen of eternity. People come and people go, but God remains the same and can do what he intends to do without you or me. Don't ever start thinking, I don't know what will even happen after I'm gone. I do. Nothing will change. Okay? I know that's hurtful. God remains the same. Do you ever notice how God talks about death of people in the Bible? And Moses died. And Joshua Wait a minute, he was a good guy, he worked really hard, let's give him a couple of chapters. No, because it was God working through Moses and it'll be God working through Joshua. God never says, oh no, what will I do now? People come, people go, God remains the same. And so it's simply our joy to be used by him for his glory and serving other people in this world. But now let me point out a flip side of this. If you're sitting there saying, good, I'm okay because I'm really not gifted at all. So nee, 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 nee. <laughs> this will never be my problem. I'm so humble. Stay with me. Let me show you the flip side of this. When you're poor in spirit, also number five, you also don't get stuck obsessing over how bad you think you are. And I'm not talking about Michael Jackson bad. I'm talking about bad as I'm no good, terrible. See, I hope you realize there are two ditches to fall into because there's more than one way to obsess over yourself. The sooner you realize that, the sooner you can walk a path down the middle free from yourself. There's more than one way to obsess over yourself, my friends, and I see both of them regularly 
in this world and as I seek to shepherd and come alongside others. Colin Smith puts it well when he says this, quote, self has more than one way of making you a slave. And if the focus on pride seems remote to you, it could be that rather than being trapped by self-love, you have been ambushed by self-loathing. Ooh. You understand what he's saying? Beating up on yourself and waking up every day thinking and feeling how bad you are are still the same problem because it's still an unhealthy, sinful preoccupation with who? Self. Satan doesn't care how he gets you wrapped up in you as long as he gets you wrapped up in you. You can be all wrapped up in you how great you think you are. You can be all wrapped up in you how bad you think you are. We are supposed to make much of Jesus, not ourselves. That's why the Bible talks so much about freedom in Christ, because you're free from self. It's not about me. It's not about how great I am. It's not about how bad I am. It's about the Savior that I have who's changed my life. Mm. A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer said this, quote, Self, whether swaggering or groveling, can never be anything but hateful to God. Well, that's really good, so I'm going to say it again. Self, self, whether swaggering or groveling, can never be anything but hateful to God. In other words, boasting and belittling are equally focused on self and therefore not focused on God and others. And so you can wreck your life by boasting and you can wreck your life by groveling. Either way, self is still in control and is a terrible tyrant. See, get this. Humility is not thinking Less of yourself and putting yourself down. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. It's self-forgetfulness. So as you walk into a room or a community group or your job or wherever or the gym, it's not how great you are as you walk in and it's not I'm the worst person here, no one else is like me, I don't belong here, I shouldn't be here. It's not thinking about yourself at all. It's like, who can I minister to? Who could I talk to? Who looks like they're hurting? Where do I get to glorify God? Where could I run it up the flagpole and mention Jesus? Where could I just start a conversation? Where could I bless someone? Where could I say thank you? You're not thinking about you at all. Biblical humility, poor in spirit, is a self-forgetfulness. See, the Bible is not about stop. Stop, stop thinking about yourself. Stop making it about you. Stop, stop, stop. The Bible is filled with replace. Put this off, put this on. One of the best ways to stop thinking about you is to be so caught up and amazed in God and so concerned for loving others. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself. You just go into situations unaware of you at all. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Now I want to give you one more characteristic that hits at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. All these are what it means to be kingdom people, but we're right on it with this one. Number six, 
When you're poor in spirit, you stop holding on to your own rights. Woo! We live in a day right now that's going crazy over rights, 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 rights. When you are poor in spirit, you stop holding on to your own rights. And you start laying down your life to love others. Is that radical? Oh, yeah. Can you do that in your own flesh? Oh, no. But that's why Jesus died and rose again and lives in kingdom people. The same one who let go of his own rights and laid us down his life for others lives in you and will help you do likewise. God intended for kingdom people and children of the king to actually look radically different and be doing things so different that 1 Peter 3.15, someone would say, how do you do this? Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Anybody asking you anything? If not, why not? Maybe you look way too much just like everybody else because you're living just like everybody else. Holding on to your own rights. Measuring out, are you getting enough back? I don't want to give more than I give back. Pride is self-seeking. And so it's easily provoked, easily provoked because you're so focused on what you think everybody around you should be doing but isn't doing for you. Let me ask you, are you easily provoked by other people, especially those closest to you? Are you that person that is constantly offended by somebody? Especially if you're that man or woman that just tells this story of how everybody has failed you. Notice who's at the center of that story, you. And something's not right when it's just always, oh my goodness, I didn't get it from her, I didn't get it from him, I don't get it at work, I don't get it in my community group. Biblical love is giving for the needs of another, expecting how much? Say it louder. You're like, what? Why would I do that? Who's going to take care of me? What if I get taken advantage of? What, what, what? Yeah. Biblical love is radical and puts you at risk. If you're living a guarded, careful life, measuring out, making sure you get back all that you're giving, that's not biblical love. Anybody can do that. Giving from the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. That's why pride is like a bucket of ice water that quenches any love you might have in a marriage or any other relationship. While humility can fan the embers of a dying love back into a roaring flame. That's why when you read the great love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, that I like to say is read at almost every wedding, practiced in no homes. I kid you not. You know, it just sounds so beautiful during the ceremony. Love is, love is, love is. Yes, try doing that in the home. Really hard, really radical, really upside down. And Jesus really died and rose again so that you could live that way. Oh man, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, you see a list of characteristics that cannot stay alive if pride is in play. And so some of you keep trying to figure out how to revive love in your marriage. 
Do we need a date night? Do we need to read a book? Do we need to go on a trip? Do we need a shared hobby? Do we, do we, do we? Do we need to share TV shows and watch more TV together? Let me suggest something different. Stop trying to revive love. And each of you go after killing pride. Because pride is what keeps you self-seeking, constantly offended. Listen, Listen to the love chapter. Love is patient. Pride is not. Love is kind. Pride is not. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Pride does. It is not irritable. Pride is. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Oh, pride does. Pride does. What about you? Is pride so alive in your life that you can't even truly love other people? I've been doing marriage counseling for 30 years now. It's just the same thing. Different details, but folks, it's the same thing when you boil it down. Some people get dramatic help because they repent. Others just sit there trying to prove who's most wrong and who should change first, and they go out disappointed with me. But it's usually one problem. He's not loving her with what real biblical love looks like. She's not loving him, and they're both waiting for someone to change first. How do I know this? I sat in that chair. I didn't start counseling people because I read a book. I started counseling people because I got counseling in the first three years of our marriage. And it so dramatically changed my life, rocked my world. So I remember I was sitting in that chair in front of a counselor who's describing what a godly husband who's supposed to be Jesus looks like and lives like and what he does. And I'm sitting there thinking, no way. What about me? What about me? I'll never read again. What about me time? What about, what about, what about, and I'm a great guy. She never had it so good. I don't beat her. I don't cuss. I don't hunt. I don't fish. I don't play golf. Girl, you got it good. I kid you not. That's what I was rehearsing. I'm sitting there doing my counseling homework, just resenting the whole thing. I shouldn't have to be doing this Wayne Mack work bug. Shouldn't have to look up these verses if she would just become the wife that I want her to be and appreciate me and wrap her world around me and orbit around planet me. This all be working out. And then I repented, which was a mercy of God. I'll never forget. I was sitting on a tan couch that Graham Johnson gave us in a mobile home that I hated, doing homework I didn't think I should have to be doing when the Spirit of God for the first time opened my mind and enabled me to see what it just might be like to live with me, how it might be hard and less than glorious. It was so foreign to me, and it is to most people, right? It takes God to give you that moment that I was afraid I would lose it before she came home. She was at the grocery store. I'm like, oh God, don't let me lose this. I've never had this. I've never had an awareness of how I would be hard to live with. And when she got home, I still remember saying, oh, 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 come here, sit here, fast. And I began to just say to her what she'd been trying to say to me, but now I was saying it. No more defending, no more promoting me, no more trying to prove she's wrong. And she began to weep Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
she needed to repent too. But I am no fool, so I don't go around publicly talking about her mess. I talk about my mess. But here's what's worth noting, husbands. When I repented and laid down my life and owned my sin, guess what? The Spirit of God was pleased to work in her, and she responded. And oh my goodness, Brad and Vicki Bigney are moving towards 32 years of marriage on September 27th that is unlike anything I thought possible. I'm the guy that bought the book, The Incompatible Couple. I'm the guy that said I married the wrong woman. I'm the guy that said I should have married Patty Hetty. That was not good. Not because I was sexually attracted to her, but because she was the woman that you could come into her house, tear it up, spill chili, bring the kids, stay late, and she was fine. And I felt like my wife was not that way. She was a little more uptight, and she was tired, and she wanted to leave early. I'm like, girl, you're just bringing me down. <laughs> Patty Hetty looks like that would work. And what we have now, by the grace of God, took being poor in spirit. And God draws near to it. And God gives grace in those moments. Oh my goodness. You stop. Stop holding on to your rights, thinking I'll be the loser. I'll be the loser. What about me? What about me? What about me? There are some of you, you're so busy holding on. And he said, if you hold on to your life, you lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, find it. Some of you need to find life, and it starts by laying yours down and say, Jesus, I'll trust you that you'll go with me. I'll trust you that you'll bless this. I'll trust you that regardless of he or she changes, you'll make me more like Jesus, and that is a glorious way to live and a joyful way to live. Here we go. I don't care what he or she does. Here's what I'm doing. God will meet you in that moment. Number seven, here's a wonderful characteristic. Oh, this is a good one. When you're poor in spirit, you're able to avoid stepping into so many of the other sins that other people are blind to. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of help. There's a lot of mess out there. There's a lot of ways to ruin your life and go down in flames. If I could work on one thing that enables me to be better at avoiding others, whew, I want to get on that. You see, poor in spirit is the very starting point for all the other blessings. So, it's also a safety, safety guard or measure against many other sins. What am I talking about? Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a what? A fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. See, here's the deal. When you pursue humility and you cultivate being poor in spirit, you strike a severe blow to one of your greatest enemies, pride, because you weaken the flesh's ability to deceive you and lead you into other sins. Very often, the root sin that is the reason a man or woman steps into so many other sins is pride, because pride blinds you not only to itself, but to so many other sins. Sins. Lou Priolo, in his excellent book, The Complete Husband, describes it this way. He says, quote, The sin of pride carries with it God's swiftest and most severe judgment. It blinds you to other sins in your life and hinders you from repenting of them. Pride is the AIDS or acquired immune deficiency syndrome 
of the soul. When a person dies as a result of acquiring AIDS, he doesn't really die of AIDS. He dies of an AIDS-complicated illness like pneumonia, tuberculosis, or meningitis. The AIDS virus somehow blinds the eyes of its victim's bodily defense system. Stay with me. Like AIDS, pride blinds you not only to itself, but to every other sin tucked away in the recesses of your heart and life. It deceives you into thinking you're spiritually well when in fact you have deadly cancer and are in desperate need. Listen to me, when you're poor in spirit, you can much more easily see and avoid stepping into so many other sins. You don't live blind. Let me give you a final one. When you're poor in spirit, number eight, you're able to persevere in affliction without complaining or cursing God. I don't know about you. Life is hard. God didn't promise me we wouldn't have trials. Even as a pastor, we've not been sheltered like nothing hard happens to us. Not true. In fact, if you're gonna serve others, often God in his sovereignty allows multiple hard things to happen to you so that you'll be weaker and more compassionate and able to help others. Vicki and I have not been shielded from trials. God didn't say you would be shielded from trials. So what is it that he'll do for us to help us to persevere? Well, the apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were living in a culture very much like ours, very much like ours, that was becoming hostile and antagonistic against them and their faith in Christ. So how would Peter help them persevere? Well, first thing he puts in place in 1 Peter 4.12 is he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening. All through the New Testament, it says, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna suffer, you'll have trials. But what kind of counsel would he add beyond just saying, stop being so surprised? Well, here's what I think is interesting. He starts with humility as one of the greatest strategies for going through trials. I want you to see it for yourself. Go to 1 Peter chapter five. 1 Peter chapter five, humility or poor in spirit is one of the best strategies for persevering in a trial. 1 Peter chapter five, beginning in verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, here's what's also interesting. Multiple places in the Bible, he calls us to humble ourselves. I want to be working so actively at killing pride and humbling myself that God doesn't need to step in and do it for me. Because that usually looks like humiliation. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, comma, casting all. Here's what I think is interesting. I grew up in the church, and our little children's worksheets just jumped right in with, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Do it. Cast. Guess what? Only humble people can cast their cares on him. Prideful people hold on to it. You say, really? Yeah, because it's got to be your way. 
It's got to look like how you think. It's got to be your timetable. It's got to be, it's got to be, it's got to be. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God, you are God and I'm not. You sovereignly have allowed me to be in this. I trust you and I will cast this whole thing on you not telling you how it has to be done, how it has to look, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Oh, look at this. Knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood in the world, you're not the only one suffering. In fact, if you live in America, it is doubtful that your suffering is the worst. We have brothers and sisters in other places in the world that are suffering horrific trials. Knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood, but may the God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I know you might not think humility is the best first strategy for persevering in a trial, but stay with me. As you go through a trial, what is it you want? I want all the grace I can get. I need God's grace. How do you get grace? He gives grace to the who? If you want God's grace in the midst of a trial, if I want as much grace as I can, I need to be humbling myself as much as I can. See, some of you keep saying, oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Pray for me. It's so hard. Pray for me. If you're still haughty and proud and demanding and insisting on your rights and your way, you don't get grace. That's why it's so hard. He gives grace to the who? Humble. Humble. The father of modern missions was William Carey. He persevered for more than 40 years in the face of all kinds of obstacles that included the death of two wives, the death of three children, recurrent fevers, an injury that left him limping for life, as well as a fire that destroyed most of his precious manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, as he tried to translate the Bible into multiple Indian languages. And he didn't curl up in a ball and say, God, why would you let this happen? I'm trying to serve you. Despite all that adversity, he was able to translate the Bible, the entire Bible, into six different languages and parts of it into 29 other dialects. So what was the secret of William Carey? How did he persevere? Listen to me. His secret was not self-esteem. He was poor in spirit to the very end. Now you say, Brad, how do you know that? This, just before his death, he asked that these simple words be inscribed for his headstone. This is all he wanted on there. William Carey, a wretched, poor, helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. You hear it? The secret for William Carey was in the last line of that epitaph. On thy kind arms I fall fall he was not self-sufficient he was not independent he was totally God dependent 
And God enabled him to persevere so long for so well and accomplish so much to the glory of God. Now I know this is heavy. I know this is, the bar is high and you're just like, oh man, but I'm not making this up. I'm just the mailman, right? I don't get to just say, ooh, what should I say to our church family? I'm gonna make it really hard. I have to go to the Bible and say, what is this truly saying? And what this is truly saying is very radical. So let me give you some great news. Great news as we close. How can any of us cultivate this kind of being poor in spirit so that we could live radically different in a world that clings to its rights? Oh, I hope you understand you can never do it on your own. I could never do it on my own. You're never going to live poor in spirit until you're first rich in Christ. Until you first have something better, you can let go of other things. You'll keep clinging to your honor, your name, your rights, your your all kinds of other stuff until you have something better. And see, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 talks about that something better. Listen, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Not talking about earthly riches and material things, talking about something that matters most. Inheritance that can't be shaken or taken. Adoption and a robe of righteousness. To know that you have peace with God that's not based on your own merit. To know that the wrath of God has been turned back and there's no condemnation. To have a security and a freedom that is not about me and I just get to live for him. You only begin to live poor in spirit when you're first rich in Christ. Come to Christ. Give your life to Christ and say, oh Jesus, Would you do in me and through me what I could never do on my own? There's still a lot of me left. But when he begins to live in you, his spirit will help you by his spirit begin to put to death the flesh. And you'll begin to see more and more. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease. He must increase. That's not a self-help project. God's spirit will do that. God's spirit will do that. He'll do it through trials. Oh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for not just setting the bar high and saying, jump, get there, get there, get there. Oh, you set the bar high and you sent your son low, who stooped and came into this world and laid aside his rights and gave his life that we might be set free from ourselves to live for another and the name of another. Oh God, thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.